0: So you're standing on the start line for your race or heading out the door for your long training run or ride. It's a warm day and you want to make sure you're hydrated as best as you possibly can be. But how do you know what that actually looks like? What does being well hydrated actually mean? And how can we measure it? And if we're not well hydrated, what does it take to rectify that situation before our race start or our training session? And is there actually a benefit to deliberately being a bit overhydrated or more hydrated than normal as well? Today we're joined by Dr Chris Irwin from Griffith University on the Gold Coast to help us unpack these questions and more. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin
1: and I'm Steph Gaskell.
0: We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimize their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each week we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask. Sort of things that people are talking about out on their run or ride In the coffee shop afterwards or going to google to try and find answers for so we'll take that question break it down and invite a guest expert in our a episode or an athlete or coach in the b episode to add their unique perspective as well today it's episode 52a how do i optimize hydration for race day and we are joined by dr chris Irwin, a researcher from griffith university on the gold coast and this particular topic was a special request from regular listener and friend of mine, Jake Sawyer. So shout out to you, Jake, over in your hometown, Steph of Adelaide. Woo-hoo. <laughs> so before we get into things, Steph, Happy new year. How's your break been? We've had a few weeks off the podcast.
1: yeah, yeah, it's been um very nice to be able to just totally switch off. I'm sure you ag- agree, and hopefully you were able to totally switch off too um yeah, went to Warburton and did a bit of camping, which was lovely. Got a kayak for, for Christmas. So, you know, took coops out in in that. We also bought this massive blow-up tube thing and contraption, and we had coops going in that with his life jacket down Warburton, <laughs> the Little Rapids, and, yeah, had a yep. fair few laughs. And so really nice break and ready ready to get back into doing a bit of work I reckon
0: now what about you? Yeah yeah pretty much the same yeah had a nice break got away from everything work related for a couple of weeks which is nice it's the first time in quite a while I've been able to do that which is good Um, but also getting back into a few things planning for for this year particularly in terms of the long munch as people might be aware from late last year we are moving to fortnightly for the podcast this year So every second week, we're going to be publishing a new episode, and the reason for that is to give us more time to work on some other things. And the main thing is thelongmunch.com, which is live now, although there's not much to look at at the moment. (laughs) But uh, yes, we've been having a a few discussions and some planning about how that's all coming together and been working on the content that's going to go up there. So we'll have more to announce about that over the next few weeks, I suspect.
1: Mm, Yeah, yep. And you're out technical whiz so you know you're working very hard behind the scenes to make it look all all good and, and fancy so thank you very much for, for that <laughs> a lifesaver yeah. I'm sure the listeners would not like to see what I'd um try and bring up it would be yeah probably a bit of a maze
0: fair enough yeah and i mentioned before that this episode was uh, requested by jake sawyer and just a reminder that if you do have a particular question that you would like answered on the podcast you can contact us on social media at the long munch on facebook twitter or instagram we'd love to hear from you love to hear your suggestions and requests for particular topics that you'd like covered or questions that you'd like answered
1: Today's episode, out is how do I optimise hydration for race day? Uh, and we are lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Chris Irwin, who, you know, you did mention that he's undertaking a um, systematic review and meta-analysis, but he's actually also doing that with you. Yeah, so yes. you know a lot in this area as well. But Chris, he's a senior lecturer in the School of Health Sciences at Griffith. University and he has actually been on the podcast before in episode 20a with the question do I need to stop drinking coffee to get the benefits of caffeine and I'm sure a lot of our listeners really enjoyed that episode. He's done research in a variety of, of areas including hydration for athletes And, yeah, he is just finishing up that meta-analysis of pre-exercise hyperhydration and performance, which um, we are all looking forward to. Hmm.
0: All right. Well, I think that's all we need to discuss right now, Steph. So I think we'll just get straight into this interview with Dr. Chris Irwin.
1: Let's do it. All right.
0: Welcome back to The Long Munch. Dr. Chris Irwin, how are you going?
2: Yeah, really well. Thanks, Elle and uh, Steph. Nice to be here with you. Yeah, it's great to have you back again. New year. I know. I was gonna. I was gonna say. Um, have you got like a, a I don't know frequent sort of flyer program uh, loyalty um, you know card or something? Uh, you know, multiple people coming on multiple times.
0: Yeah, we'll, we'll have to get something going. You're not the first person to be on <laughs> twice, but
2: if we get you back for a third time, then maybe we'll have to get you something special. Okay. Mate, if it's anything like all the other frequent flyer programs, you have to earn a bazillion points to actually make it worthwhile anyways. That's so, true. Yeah. We should
0: make some ridiculous scheme that you'd have to be yeah. on every week, basically, to, to T- make it. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, so as we said, you you have been on the podcast before back in episode 20A, and that was completely unrelated to today's topic. We were talking about you know whether you need to abstain from caffeine to get the performance benefits. But today we're talking about hydration, specifically hydration before exercise. So obviously another research area, uh, and you have been involved in research in hydration. What's, what's your interest been in hydration from a sort of a research perspective over the years?
2: Yeah, um, I guess uh, I shifted away from the caffeine stuff. That was my very first study that I did uh, as part of my master's program. And then when I started my PhD, I, I transitioned into the hydration area uh, and uh, I did my PhD looking at uh, hydration status and the impact of uh, co-consuming alcohol. Um, so if we, if we got people to dehydrate, gave them a, a small amount of alcohol, as you might see at a sporting event, someone might go and do exercise, lose a certain amount of fluid and then have you know, one or two beers after a game or, or an event. How does that have an impact on, uh, on their cognitive performance? So I, I sort of developed the interest from that, but I've also got a personal interest in, um, in hydration. I'm a heavy, heavy sweater. Mm-hmm. They call me the human sweat gland. Um, that's <laughs> why I got used for a lot of studies uh, as a participant because I just sweat quite profusely. Yep. Um, uh, but, yeah, since my PhD, done, uh, I guess I've been very lucky to be involved in a number of studies, had students uh, who who have been doing honours projects and and PhD programs of research that have been in hydration and we've sort of looked at a lot of things in that hydration space, the effects of dehydration and fluid consumption on exercise performance. Uh, We've had a look at uh, the rehydration potential of different types of beverages. So can we optimise you know, our, our rehydration strategy by using different beverages uh, and in particular the effects of when we consume food at the same time uh, and then ways that we can sort of really optimise fluid retention.
0: Yeah, cool. And obviously, you know, the topic of hydration is particularly relevant for you guys up in Queensland where the heat and I guess especially humidity, are, you know, a real factor. Uh, both for races and just day to day for people during training like I work with a number of athletes probably more so further north in places like Townsville and Rockhampton and you know they often have to train super early in the morning in summer particularly to avoid the worst of the heat and particularly that humidity as well how does that go I mean obviously you're down in sort of southeast Queensland is that still an issue where people train really early in the morning to try and avoid the heat or it's not so bad sort of further south
2: yeah, I guess I, I know what that North Queensland climate is like. I, I lived and worked up there when I was a school teacher at, at Tully State High School, mm. and uh, yeah, it, it is uh, it is hard to deal with. And I can appreciate people needing to train a lot earlier in the morning to try and escape the heat, or, or later at night. In Southeast Queensland, I'm on the Gold Coast, and uh, I guess we still have our days where it's hot and humid. Uh, It's probably not as consistent or for as long a duration across the year as it is in other parts of the world. As you get sort of further and further north into the, you know, closer to the equator, it's going to be, you know, far more hot and humid. And we haven't been as bad recently because we've had that, what is it, the La Niña? I can't remember. Is it El Niño or La Uh, Niña? La (laughs) Niña, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. The wet one.
2: (laughs) The wet wet one, yeah. So we've had a bit of that, um, you know, more recently. And uh, I guess that sort of reduced you Know the real sort of hot, hot days. So it really, it really depends. I, I do see people, I'm, I'm an early starter. I get out on the bike at about four o'clock in the morning and I see um, quite a number of people out, you know, out on the road, either cycling or, or running early to you know, beat the heat on, particularly the, the days that it's predicted to be hot and humid. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. And our topic today was a question that came in from a, a listener of the podcast, actually, Jake, and, and he wanted to know sort of how you optimize hydration prior to a race or even a you know, a big, long sort of training session where the quality of that session is going to be important. So I guess the first question with that, you know, when we say, you know, optimise hydration or being well hydrated, quote
2: unquote, what does that actually mean? Yeah, that's a tough question (laughs) (laughs) to answer. What is is optimal hydration or or being well hydrated? I guess, you know, before you sort of try and define what well hydrated is, it's probably important to appreciate just how important water is to humans um you know when we think about the human body uh, water makes up somewhere between 50 and 70% of our total body weight so you know that in itself indicates just how important it is but it plays a really large role in lots of sort of processes or or uh, or things that happen within the human body so making sure that uh, we're we're hydrated or well hydrated is critically important to those processes um, we lose water on a daily basis. You know, it goes through fluctuations. We're going to lose part, uh, some of it as, as urine. So when we urinate, we're going to lose water, we're going to lose some as sweat. We're going to lose some as respiration in that respiration process. And generally it's about two to three liters per day that we'll um, sort of lose. So we have to replace that fluid that, that's lost. And that to me is really what you know being well hydrated is all about it's about coming back to equilibrium replacing losses to a point where uh, your total body water is in balance with what it should be and often you'll you'll feel better and uh, you'll perform better when we're well hydrated
0: yep yeah and definitely i think you know we, we talked about sort of replacing fluid during exercise back way back in episode 3A of the podcast with Dr. Lewis James. And we talked about there the fact that, you know, there's still some controversy about, you know, exactly how much you should drink or how much you can afford to lose during exercise. But regardless of, of that controversy, I think if you look across all the different guidelines that are written in different ways, the one thing that is universal with all of them is starting well hydrated is a good thing regardless of what you're then going to do during exercise.
2: Yeah, exactly, and for different people that will be different, you know, because it does depend on what your total body water content is. It'll be different for males and females, or different for body uh, composition and body size and shape. Uh, so what you know is well hydrated to one person, maybe subtle or how much fluid they need might be subtly different from what another person needs. I guess for athletes though, being well hydrated is critically important because they really rely on. Uh, I guess, the cardiovascular and thermoregulatory functions that water has. uh, And that's what's critical to sort of performance. When we exercise or or, or do physical activity, we've got energy demands and we need to meet those energy demands. We rely on our circulatory system to carry oxygen around the body and and the big part of the circulatory system is the blood and uh and and most of the blood is is water yeah Uh, and and so we really have to have adequate water volume in the blood to allow those processes to occur and that circulating blood also helps with dissipation of heat because it carries heat from the core of the body out to the sort of outside of the skin and and that allows evaporation to occur and cooling to occur so that's really critical for athletes so being well hydrated having the right you know total body water and and blood volume is going to be important for those processes so when it comes back, when you come back to sort of that, that i guess that definition of well hydrated or optimal hydration i guess to me it's really about finding that equilibrium and total body water balance
0: yep yeah, and that's what scientists would call you hydration or being U hydrated. Yeah, correct. Yep, and I guess when we think about like the total amount of water in the body, as you said, total body water kind of describes all the water throughout the body and that's about 50 to maybe 65% of your body weight depending on the person. As you said, there's a few variables in there, but then we can think about like individual compartments where that water sits. So there's water inside our cells. There's water, the water in our blood that you mentioned before, so the volume of our blood. Then there's the water that sits sort of in between those two, that sits around the outside of the cells, but not in the blood vessels, called the interstitial fluid. And so, from a hydration point of view, you know, which one of these actually matters? Do, do all of them matter? Does certain ones matter more than others? Uh, we also have, you know, we've talked a lot about sodium, you know, towards the end of last year, and you know, the osmolality, so you know, how concentrated the the dissolvable bits are within the blood, for example, which kind of gives you an idea of the how diluted or not it is and so you know we can we can frame hydration in terms of that total body water we could frame it in terms of those individual compartments we could frame it in terms of the concentration you know, how diluted or not it is does it matter which one of those we use do we need to use a combination of those or is one more important than others
2: Yeah, look, that's a good question as well. I think they're all important. I think it comes back to what's practical to measure when we're thinking about hydration status, uh, what's the easiest thing to measure, and that really depends on who's doing that measure. Like we do lots of stuff where we're measuring hydration in a laboratory environment. That's going to be very different from what an athlete might do on themselves out in the field. And so the measure that you use and and what you're actually measuring will really depend on that context.
0: Mm, Yep. And that was going to be my next question is sort of, okay, well, we know that being hydrated is important. We know that we can sort of divide that up in in different ways. And some of those are gonna be easier to measure than others from a practical perspective. But what are the different ways that we can actually go about attempting to measure
2: this stuff? Yeah, lots of different ways. Um, So quite a number of different techniques to measure hydration status. As I said, it really does depend on the context of where you're measuring that. So in a laboratory environment, you might use some measures out in the field. You might use others. They all have pros and cons. uh, And uh, I guess weighing up which one you use depends on lots of those factors. So we can measure total body water using... Uh, quite advanced techniques using sort of isotope dilution <laughs> uh, stuff. We're not going to do that out, out in the field. It's going to be in the lab. We can do things with uh, urine. We can do things with blood. Uh, again, you can do uh, that in the lab or it could be out in the field. Mostly blood measures will be done in the lab. We can measure things like osmolality. Uh, we can me- measure plasma volume or blood total blood volume. We can measure uh, urine osmolality. We could also do specific gravity. That's quite an easy technique to to do and that could be because it's quite portable the US uh, G refractometers are quite portable that could be done out in the field it's just a matter of collecting a urine sample we can also measure things like changes in body weight if we control everything that is happening in terms of intake and output and we measure things we can look at changes in body weight as a marker of changes in hydration
1: mm. uh,
2: so you know that's another real practical thing that could be done i guess it really does depend on on that context, though, as to what you would use. And out in the field, so when we're talking about most you know athletes who are training, probably monitoring body weight changes um, and uh, looking at sort of urine markers are probably the most practical ones. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that comes with with uh, some of those other measures in terms of impracticality is that they're just not. Some of them aren't portable. You have to be in a in a lab to be able to measure them, uh, and then. You know, the cost and technical expertise required to actually monitor those things is uh, is far more challenging than you know, things like body weight and, and urine yeah so from a urine perspective we can do things like urine color we can look at sort of you know frequency of urination or you know volume that's being produced they're probably the, the most simple things to use.
1: Yeah. So I guess, as you've just mentioned, there's lots of different ways you can use urine as a potential indicator of hydration. So like you said, it could be from the amount or how often that we may pee. It could be the color or like you mentioned, the more technical methods like urine osmolality or urine specific gravity. How reliable are these methods and are there any caveats to using them?
2: Yeah, that uh, is a great question, Steph. And there are caveats to using urine as a marker of hydration status. I guess as a sort of one-off spot measure, I'd say most urine markers really are unlikely to be valid measures of our current hydration status. And the reason for that is that they're really subject to large variations in rapid fluid consumption. So if we're consuming a lot of fluid very rapidly, we're going to... um, I guess induce what's called diuresis uh, and you're going to lose large amounts of fluid but you're not necessarily retaining that fluid so yeah how much we retain versus how much we lose can depend on how much we consume and how quickly we consume that fluid also the type of fluid and whether we're you know eating food or using other sort of uh, agents that might help to retain that fluid so as a as a one-off spot measure it's probably not you know super valid but The caveat is that if we can standardize things prior to measuring, we've got a better chance of it being an accurate marker. So often it's best done first thing in the morning. So waking from from sleep, you've had a, a period of sleep that might be eight hours or so. And so you've had a standardized period there where you haven't consumed fluid. So if you wake up and pee first thing in the morning, in terms of urine color, if it's nice and pale or clear, that's a pretty good indication that you're well hydrated. Whereas if it comes out really dark in colour, it's a good indication that you're probably dehydrated and need to consume some fluid. Now, you could go and consume that fluid quite rapidly and then do another urine Mm. sort of output and it should change in colour over a period of time. So I guess using markers like urine can be really useful, but it's just being aware that what you do prior can have an influence on things like urine colour and urine volume that's produced. Um, The other thing that is probably a bit of a caveat to urine, particularly urine color, is that there's dietary factors that can change urine color. So, you know, vitamins like riboflavin, you know, are going to change the color of your urine. So it might give you a, a sort of a different color, but doesn't necessarily allow you to determine whether that's a true reflection of good hydration or not. Um, so we can use a urine colour chart. So some of the work that was done by Larry Armstrong a long time ago, uh, he produced an eight point urine colour chart. And then it gives you a good indication of hydration status. So if you've got really pale yellow urine or clear urine, that's a really good indicator of being hydrated. As it gets darker and darker, right down to, I think, level eight is it's almost brown mm. um <laughs> you know that's a good indication that your urine is far too concentrated and there's not enough fluid there's more solute in it and that's a good indication that you're probably dehydrated because your body's trying to conserve as much water as possible
0: mm. i think that's a really good point you know i think a lot of people sort of see things like urine color or urine specific gravity or whatever and say it's a measure of hydration well it's not a direct measure of hydration it's a measure of how your kidneys are responding to your level of hydration in the body not the hydration itself which is why as you said if you suddenly drink you know half a layer of water the color of urine you produce shortly afterwards may not reflect the actual amount of water in your body and the other one would be not just fluid intake, but fluid loss. So if you go out and exercise and you sweat a lot, you know, you've lost a whole bunch of fluid. You'll have probably quite concentrated urine directly after exercise. You may be dehydrated, but you may not be. It's just how the kidneys are responding to
2: what's going on with the sweat glands as well. Exactly. And so that's why you know standardisation is, is critical. And whenever we do laboratory-based studies, we always impose a standardised period where, yeah there's no fluid consumption no food consumption for a period of time before we take a urine sample and measure hydration status mm-hmm.
0: and do you think that the urine color charts have kind of been
2: overused or misinterpreted over the years um I think I think they have value. Like I think they have their place because it's it's something that can be done so easily. You know, people mm. can sort of use, you know, look at their own urine. It's 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 non-invasive. You can go and measure your own urine color, but it's I think it's more about being aware of what that what the color means and you know and, and some of those practices that have occurred prior. So if it hasn't been standardization and someone's you know, just gulped down a, mm-hmm. a huge amount of fluid uh, and they're peeing out and it's coming coming out, you know, quite sort of pale yellow, they might think, oh, I'm well hydrated, but they've, they're not really aware of some of those sort of caveats that lead to why that has occurred. Mm. I think it's just being conscious of that and being aware of, you know, what's happening prior to, to taking that measure. Mm. Yeah.
1: And... There's also some really cool urine charts out there that, our you mentioned you've seen someone develop in Texas. What's that one?
0: <laughs> yeah, so the, the University of Texas football team created this chart. And if you do a Google image search on Texas Longhorns urine colour, you'll find it mm-hmm. in Google Images straight away. And it's, it's basically the same P chart that Chris just described from one to eight. Your One is almost clear, completely clear. Eight is almost brown, and you've got all the different shades of yellow in between, and they have an interpretation of what those colours mean on the right-hand side. So if you're a a one to three, which is the palest colours, it says over on the right that you have championship hydration levels, (laughs) quote-unquote. If you are between a four or four and five on the chart, which is there's a big red line that's drawn under three, which gives you a bit of a visual cue that you should be a but you know, less than three according to to whoever put this chart together but if you're a four or five the interpretation is that you're a selfish teammate now if you have a six or seven on this chart the interpretation and this is a direct quote i'm reading it off the picture right now says blatant disregard for your teammates you are headed to quote unquote area 51 now i don't know what area 51 is don't think I want to know. It doesn't sound like a good place to go uh, (laughs) if if you uh, play football for the University of Texas. And then eight on the color chart, which is the darkest color of all, is in very red section. It says, you are a bad guy with three exclamation marks afterwards. So clearly they're aiming for everyone to be below a three on that chart. But again, the issue here is that, you know, as you were saying, Chris, that these charts are stuck up on the walls in the bathrooms by the looks of the picture. So people are going to the bathroom at all sorts of different times of the day when they're on campus or wherever their football training facility is, and then looking at the colour of their pee. Now, there might be times that because of, you know, they've just finished training or something, their pee probably is a four or a five. And that's probably normal and, and reflective of, you know, the training they've done. And they're looking at this and looking at the fact that they're a selfish teammate. And, um, <laughs> you know, that causes all sorts of problems. And there have been examples in the US of people that have died of hyponatremia from overconsuming fluid because they've been told, basically, you're a selfish teammate or something to that effect, go out and drink more because you're not performing or whatever. And so I think this can be the danger sometimes with interpreting urine colour charts is you can't just take – P at any time of the day regardless of what you've eaten and drunk regardless of what training you have or haven't done and applying this one day in exactly the same way in every situation
2: yeah i think that's absolutely spot on al i think um you know it's about you know understanding the context that leads mm. to that that measure uh, and often what we say when we're monitoring hydration status is that we don't just use one single measure. So we will often use multiple measures. Uh, we'll take urine, but we'll also measure body weight change as well. And um, mm-hmm. we never do one thing in isolation. It gives you a, a better overall sort of view of what's happening from our hydration status, but we will look at serial measures. Um, so you don't just do a, one, a one-off spot test. You actually take it multiple times uh, and you might do something like body weight over multiple days to, to look at fluctuations that occur.
0: Mm. And the other thing with urine colour is, you know, first thing in the morning, that one will be slightly darker. And yeah. the reason is that your kidneys sort of don't produce as much urine overnight, and that's a deliberate thing so you don't have to wake up and pee overnight. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, you're always you, – you first – First pee of the morning will always be a bit more concentrated and a little bit darker than the rest of them, and that's not necessarily a problem. It just means you need to shift where the goalposts are in terms of what you're aiming for colour-wise at that time
1: of day. Yeah, Mm -hmm. spot on. So would second pee of the morning be a bit better than the first then?
2: It it, it could be. It could be a good um, marker. That's one thing we often do in our laboratory environment when we're doing hydration studies. We'll get a participant to collect a sample when they first wake up then we'll ask them to consume some fluid mm-hmm. uh, and they'll bring that sample with them into the lab, but then we'll get them to produce one when they come into the lab as well so we can look at what that what that looks like.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yep.
2: And cause yeah. Because Al's, Al's exactly right. It will be a little bit darker because you've gone through a period of maybe eight or so hours where you haven't consumed fluid. So naturally, your, bo- your body's going to conserve as much water as possible during that period of time. Now, obviously, if you've consumed a lot of water just before going to bed, um, or mm-hmm. other beverages doesn't have to be water but uh, <laughs> that you know that might have <laughs> that might have a, a, an effect in terms of how much you pee out that morning
1: yeah yep and you spoke just before I think leading into the next question there's such thing as called the WUT model so checking your weight your urine and your your thirst how reliable or is, you know, this kind of a better practice for for athletes to to use?
2: Yeah, look, I think as I sort of mentioned before, using multiple measures is probably the best approach rather than a single measure. So, you know, you looking at your volume of urine that you produce is pretty you don't have to measure the exact volume, but you can sort of tell whether you're producing a lot of urine or not. The Mm -hmm. urine colour um, you can measure your body weight and look at what that. Is. So if you do that across several days, you know when you've, you know, you're well hydrated. you will feel well hydrated. You can you can sort of measure that on it on a sort of day by day basis and look at those fluctuations to see whether it's it's you know substantially different from normal or not. Uh, and then thirst is is another measure, but the problem with thirst is it's often a very delayed response to to dehydration. Mm-hmm. A lot of the you know the physiological mechanisms that are put that are in place to tell us that we're thirsty. They're very delayed, and so by the time we, we feel thirsty, we're, we're already in a dehydrated state.
0: Mm, yeah, and I think that WUT model was sort of put together as as Chris said to not be reliant on one particular marker, and and the idea is it's it's kind of like one of those Venn diagrams with those three things, and you're trying to hit the the bullseye in the middle, which is basically that your weight is less than one percent below what it normally is when you're well hydrated as Chris was just talking about before that urine color is less than four on that color chart and that you're not you know particularly thirsty and so I think the idea behind that is that you know you could have one of those things that's quote-unquote not right so you might be thirsty but your urine color is normal and your body weight is normal well maybe you're thirsty because of medication or you've been Mouth breathing in your sleep or something—I don't know—and um, so it may not be reliable on its own. Same with the urine color for all the reasons that we've talked about before. Body weight might fluctuate because of you know glycogen, like your carbohydrate stores in your muscle, if you did a particularly big training session or you've carb loaded or something like that. And so I guess the idea here is that one of those on its own isn't necessarily. I'm definitely dehydrated. Mm. Two of those together, it's much more likely. Three of those together, it's almost certain that you are. And so you can put those three things together, weight, urine, colour and thirst, and get a pretty good picture from a practical perspective without having to do fancy lab testing and all that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah. And, and that's it's all about finding practical ways to, to monitor your hydration. Yeah. Mm. Yep. yep.
1: yep. And so next one that's really popular, I know, particularly in, in gyms and other places is using things like the BIA scales, so bioelectrical huh. impedance scales. Um, what are your thoughts around that to using that for feedback for your hydration?
2: Yeah, look, um, they are becoming far more popular and that's because the cost of them has, has really come down and you, know, you find them in a lot, lot of gyms and we, we have a bunch of them here at work as well. But you can get more expensive devices, um, which are multi-frequency and provide you know a little bit, little bit sort of more in terms of uh, accuracy and reliability. But I would have to say that they measure hydration status based on electrical conductivity. So when we're more hydrated, we've got more body water, then you get more conductivity. I guess they're not always accurate and it probably depends on the quality of the scales uh, and they're, they're reliant on the manufacturers that produce algorithms to extrapolate you know, the values. Mm. Uh, so it really depends on the quality of, of the manufacturer, the quality of the scales. We have one here at Griffith uh, that's a multi-function device. Very expensive device. I think it was about seventeen thousand dollars. It cost us, but it's a multi-frequency device. We've tested that against things like DEXA to look at uh, muscle tissue, skeletal muscle mass, that sort of stuff, and we're getting some pretty good results with that. So, you know, with with that device, we're probably far more confident in the results that get produced from a total body water perspective, as opposed to some of those stand-on devices, which might be real cheap, you know, Kmart type things. So I think you know, they can be used, um, but they should be really just a general guide rather than a, a precise measurement of, of um, hydration status. And I, I, if someone's going to use them in the gym, I'm not going to stop them from using them, but you know, just be aware that there, there may be some accuracy, uh, reliability issues. If you tend to use the same device every time you're at the gym, that might be you know, better than if you're just jumping on one device here and a different device in another place uh, because you might get different values from those. So if you're using one more frequently or or consistently, at least you can track that over time, mm-hmm. and that's probably better than just a one-off measure with one device.
0: Mm. We've we've got a similar device here and found pretty much the same.
2: Yeah,
0: I think for me the other problem with the BIA is you know. The format that you get the data in. So you're going to get a total body water value in liters, or maybe as a percentage of your total body weight. You know, fifty percent water or sixty percent water. You know, whatever it is. But as you said right back at the start, like how do you define what you hydration is in an individual? Well, how many liters of body water do you need to be you hydrated? It's yeah. hard to say. Or, you know, what percentage of body mass? It's different in different people depending on percentage body fat and muscle mass and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, you can get those numbers, but what do they actually mean and what do they actually tell you? Unless you, you know what that number is for you, it's not going to be that useful.
2: Yeah, so the, the interpretation is really important. And, um, yeah, most of those cheaper devices are just going to give you one value. Some of the better devices um, start to break it apart into extracellular, intracellular fluid. Again, the algorithms that sit behind that, I don't know how they've, they're determined, but uh, you would hope there's some sort of research behind that. <laughs> mm,
1: yeah. And I think, like, as you said, it's the interpretation, and often, you know, that people go out and get it. They get this nice looking printout, but nothing is really explained except for the piece of paper, and you're left to interpret that yourself. Yeah. So, yeah. So moving on to, I guess, how to ensure we're hydrated prior to a race now, if an athlete does have a race coming up, maybe it's in hot conditions and they want to be sure that they've optimised their hydration prior to the start, do they need to do anything specific to to make sure they are optimising their hydration? And if so, how far out from the race start?
2: Yeah, that's a a great question. Um, I guess, you know, probably start here by saying that the key thing people should be more cognizant about is hydration in general uh, and ensuring that they're drinking enough fluid on a daily basis to counter any losses that occur. So we just need to be far more aware that, you know, we need to be drinking every day. So that's Mm -hmm. the first thing. I guess it becomes even more important when you're living in a warm or hot sort of climate and your training a lot more if you're doing a lot more sort of physical activity because your fluid losses are likely to be higher because you'll have more sweating that occurs so in terms of what people should be doing I guess in the days leading up to the event probably just monitoring things like urine color and thirst and 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 body weight fluctuations and and drinking enough to just keep your urine color pale yellow is probably a, a good thing to do in those days leading up to an event on the day of an event, it probably depends on when that event is occurring. So if you're, you know, exercising or, or competing early in the morning versus afternoon, the timing of fluid um, really depends on the person and what their needs are and what their current hydration status is. So if you've been monitoring it for days, you'll have a better feel for where you're starting at and what you need to do. But the general guidance that we are provided from some of the sort of position statements is that athletes should consume somewhere between five to 10 mils per kilo of their body weight, somewhere between two to four hours before exercise. And that will give them enough time to remove any excess fluid that they might've consumed. So they'll, they'll be able to sort of pee that fluid out if, if they've consumed too much. So if you do it too close to the, the event, that might present challenges in terms of not being able to you know, relieve yourself and, and remove that excess fluid beforehand. Um, I would say that it's probably important to avoid drinking certain types of fluids immediately before exercise as well, because if you're consuming things like high fat fluids like milk or um, supplement based drinks, they're likely to sit in the gut for a lot longer. And that could present sort of issues with gastrointestinal upset, particularly if you don't have enough time delay before you need to compete. And then probably the other one piece of advice that I would say is critical for most people is that like anything in pre-exercise nutrition, any of the sort of pre-exercise hydration practices should really be well rehearsed and and, um, and tested in training environments before you go and implement them in competition or before competition, so that you've got a feel for whether it works for you as an individual and whether that approach is worth adopting.
1: Yeah, yep. And I know something that a lot of athletes do as well is, you know, add electrolytes. They think they need to add a whole heap of electrolytes the morning of or the the day before. Is there an important role for electrolytes in optimising hydration, you know, the day before or the morning of a race?
2: Yeah, look, I think electrolytes are an important consideration. Probably the most important one is sodium Mm -hmm. of those. It it plays a role in helping to maintain hydration by regulating balance of, of fluids in and around cells. So drinking fluids with electrolytes can be useful, but you could also do it in combination with food. Most food's going to have sodium in it, and that's also going to help, help with fluid retention. Some of the research that we've done here, um, looking at how we can optimise, in particular, rehydration, but it, it would work in the same vein with prehydration, is that when we consume food, it helps to delay gastric emptying. So if we're consuming fluid like water with food, it's going to help reduce that, I guess, that induction of diuresis and we're going to have more opportunity to hold on to that fluid for a longer period of time.
1: Mm, Yeah, because I was going to say it's not necessarily just about the electrolytes, is it? It's about like the macronutrients too, isn't it, in, in food that helps with hydration
2: yeah exactly so carbohydrate and these these are important for um you know for per exercise performance as well so mm. you know we need we need fuel or substrate and mm. and so they they play sort of multiple roles they can help with retention of fluid but they can also help with refueling or fueling up for for exercise the other thing that's useful to to recognize though as well is that sodium can play a role in stimulating thirst as well so mm. if someone's a little bit sort of reluctant to to drink enough Um, sometimes you know having salty foods can help uh, induce that response to go and consume fluid and Mm -hmm. so um, you know that that might be a strategy that that could play a role.
1: Mm. Yep and any common mistakes that you've seen athletes make in trying to optimize their hydration prior to a race?
2: Yeah certainly a couple of things one is um, that timing of fluid intake when that occurs if you Consuming fluid quite uh, heavily the night before, mm. you you run the risk of like having so much fluid that you got to get up uh, in the middle of the night several times to go and pee because you just can't hold on across that period of time, and so you get yeah you know, awoken so many times across that night, and that that could be detrimental because if you don't have enough rest, you know you might have hydrated really well, but you didn't get enough sleep or rest mm. and, and or recovery, and and, and yeah you know, that could be detrimental to your performance the next day. I think uh, the other one is probably drinking too much immediately before you need to compete or exercise or race. And you don't if you don't give yourself enough time to remove excess fluid, then, you know, it might depend on the type of fluid as well, but it could sit in the gut and slosh around while you're racing and <laughs> that's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to cause gastrointestinal issues and um, you're just not going to be able to perform as well as you, 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 you know, otherwise would.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and um, I know a lot of athletes, they tend to think that they need to avoid drinking coffee the day prior to or in the pre-event meal due to thinking that it dehydrates them. Any comments on this apart from the fact that they're crazy?
2: Oh, I agree with you, Steph. They're absolutely crazy. I know Alan doesn't drink coffee, but uh, have you started yet,
0: Alan? No, no, no. You didn't inspire me to start a habit last time.
2: Well, Ben used to be the, Ben Desbro. As you, you've had him on the podcast mm-hmm. a couple of times, he used to be the same. He's a caffeine researcher and never drank coffee. And uh, he he started a few years ago. I think he's now addicted to coffee. So, <laughs> look, I think it's crazy. Um it's, it is an interesting question, and we see it quite a lot as well. We hear people saying, "Oh, I've got to cut out coffee because it's going to dehydrate me." Um, it's a bit of a fallacy, to be honest, and we can probably debunk this idea. There's a little bit of research that's explored this in detail. The first is probably the stuff that's been done from the UK on the Beverage Hydration Index. Um, So that was the stuff that Ron Morn and and Stu Galloway and, and their team did. And they looked at the potential of different beverages to affect hydration status and basically indicated that most beverages, including coffee, were as effective as water at delivering fluid. It was really only milk beverages and oral rehydration re- rehydration solutions that were probably better than than water, but everything else was on par. And then there was some uh, really interesting work that was done by Sophie Killer and Asker, can, um, a number of years ago, and they looked at whether coffee causes dehydration uh, and if it should be avoided or reduced to maintain fluid balance. Uh, but their research suggests otherwise as well. And that when coffee is consumed in moderation by people who are habituated to caffeine, so if they're regular consumers of caffeine and might have a couple of coffees a day or one a day, coffee provides similar rehydrating qualities to water.
0: And is this because caffeine is not really a diuretic or just because it might be a small diuretic, but the water that you get with the coffee offsets that anyway?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right, Alan. It's, It's really any diuresis some people will tell me uh, I get this from students all the time when, I, when I'm teaching them um in some of the nutrition courses I'll say but I drink a coffee and then I need to pee straight away I'm like well it's the volume of fluid that you've you've drank that's <laughs> causing the so it's volume induced diuresis it's not the caffeine in the coffee that's really driving that effect mm-hmm. now caffeine from other sources in high doses like it might be from a pre-supplement or something like oh, like a pre-workout supplement or something like that that could have a different effect but the amount of caffeine in coffee relative to the amount of fluid that you're drinking it's really the fluid that might drive that sort of diuresis effect but we're going to retain that fluid as well as we would most other fluids so look if if you are a coffee drinker if we go back to that sort of episode 20 where we talked about do you need to uh, remove coffee from your diet no no i if you're a coffee drinker keep drinking coffee you'll probably get far more benefit out of having that coffee because you'll feel better about uh, what you've had as opposed to sort of eliminating it. Mm.
0: I think there's plenty of pro cyclists that will tell you that it doesn't have an effect or they would be riding around dehydrated all the time. All right. Let's 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 finish up by looking at, a, at another slightly different topic to this. So we sort of talked about being sort of you hydrated or sort of optimally hydrated for training or, or race day. But there are some times and some certain circumstances where people might deliberately try to go over and above that. And that's what we call hyperhydration, um, and looking at that specifically pre-exercise. So this is often when an event is held in very hot conditions, and the nature of that event means it's very difficult to drink enough to stay well hydrated during the event. And that might be because it's practically difficult or because the amount of fluid that you would actually have to drink, you just couldn't tolerate that from a gut perspective. So this is often... Um, Endurance events, but probably the shorter, more intense endurance events—you know, the marathon and maybe Olympic distance triathlon—those kind of, you know, one and a half to two, two and a half hours at the elite level, probably that kind of level. So very high intensity um, in hot weather, producing a lot of heat, very high sweat rates, but also where probably the the cost to slowing down to consume fluid or just the tolerance of fluid would be really detrimental to their performance. So we we briefly discussed this concept of pre-exercise hyperhydration with Dr. Meg Ross back in episode 28a, which was more around the cooling aspect. But can you give us a quick overview of, of what this hyperhydration strategy is and what it kind of involves roughly?
2: yeah um look you're right in some circumstances there can be barriers that might be physical barriers it might be practical barriers that might prevent someone from being able to consume fluid during exercise and sometimes that's just to do with the sport itself uh or the activity that you're doing that you know fluid's not available or you don't have access to it or it's just impossible to drink enough during that exercise. And if the person's likely to, to know that they're going to, uh, or they're exercising in a hot environment and they're likely to lose a lot of fluid during that exercise event, then they could consider that hyperhydration uh, activity as a strategy. Basically, the aim is to increase total body water and plasma volume above our sort of normal resting levels or what we would consider equilibrium. So we're increasing that. And what that does is it allows someone to lose more fluid during exercise before they become hypohydrated. Um, So they've got basically they've built a buffer and allows them more capacity to lose fluid before it gets to that point where they might have their performance impacted typically involves consuming a large amount of fluid, normally water, with uh, what we call an osmotically active agent. And that can be sodium, it might be glycerol, there can be other agents as well that are used. And it's normally done orally, but uh, there are research studies that look at intravenous hyperhydration as well. But in the field, most athletes are probably using, you know, oral intake of fluid and one of those agents to help retain that fluid. So that helps to reduce that water bolus that might be consumed from inducing diuresis. A bit like what we're talking about with the, with coffee before.
0: Mm, yeah. So basically, if you're going to you know overhydrate, if you didn't have that osmotic agent, like you know, the person who drinks a lot before they go to bed the night before a race, they're just going to be peeing all of that fluid out and end up no
2: better off than where they started, or sometimes worse off than where they started. Exactly. You're not going to hold on to that fluid, so mm. you end up end up either. Back to where you started, or you might overshoot and you end up losing a lot more fluid. So Mm. you need something to help sort of hold that fluid in for for uh, for a period of time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so this has come up, this concept has come up in a couple of different episodes on the podcast over the last few years. And we've sort of talked briefly about the fact that the jury's still been kind of out on whether this strategy is actually helpful from a performance point of view, because there's lots of different studies, some use glycerol, some use sodium, as you said, some use intravenous, although obviously that's illegal from a uh, anti-doping perspective. So we're not uh, condoning that, but it can be used as a research method just to study the concept. Um, And so, you know, there's different studies that have had varying results. And so, you know, one thing that you and I've been working on over the last sort of six to 12 months is a Uh, meta-analysis so trying to pull together all of those studies that have ever been done on this topic and then mathematically sort of mashing them together and analyzing them to try and work out is there a genuine effect when you combine the results of all of these studies together so can you tell us a little bit about I guess how that kind of works and I guess where we're at so far with with what we've found
2: around that yeah yeah well I'm Lucky enough to work with you on this, L. Um, I'm actually, I'm, I'm like a good cyclist. I'm just drafting off, um, of off your, uh, of your work. Um, uh, no, it's been great to, to do this, and I think it's, uh, you know, it's something that is, as you said, it, you know, uh, has a lot of interest and and uh, it is an important thing to study. And there's been a few studies done in the past, but what we've done is a very recent review. Where we've tried to consolidate all of the literature that exists, but we are taking a slightly different approach where we're only including studies when they have actually reported a significant shift in, uh, in, in fluid volume, total body water or, or you know a significant change in body weight with the hyperhydration strategy that's been delivered. So in some studies, they might have done that administration of hyperhydration, but it hasn't actually resulted in a change in, in body fluid. Uh, so we're, we've taken an approach where we're consolidating it down to those that have. And then, as you said, we're we're meta-analyzing it. So we're trying to quantify what the effect is. And we're looking at other factors, not just on exercise performance, but also looking at things like cardiac function. Uh, We're looking at thermoregulation uh, as well. And then trying to have a look at whether there's certain factors or certain, I guess, uh, mediators of that effect. So does it depend on the type of exercise that's done? Does it depend on what hyperhydration method is used, whether glycerol is used, whether sodium is used, um, the volume uh, that you're able to retain in that administration? Um, so I guess, you know, where we're at is uh, we're, we've crunched the numbers. We're pretty close. So I know Alan's been working a lot on this uh, and I need to pick up my, my, my game a little bit and, and do a bit. But uh, what we've found is that there is a beneficial effect of hyperhydration, but it's relatively small in the scheme of things. When we put it up against, you know, lots of other factors or things that you could be doing, I guess it's one of those things that you would have to have good justification for for i guess for doing prior to an event it looks like the effects are, uh and this is probably mostly on the basis that this is where most of the research is but the effects are probably most beneficial to cycling uh we didn't see any effects with other types of activities like what we're doing sprint performance we did uh muscle strength alan you yeah you're a there was
0: yeah there was some like muscle strength and power studies there was a tennis specific one from memory so it was looking That's at right. different aspects of tennis performance and then there was a soccer one which had sort of sprint distance but also some skill performance things like how long it took to do certain skills and things like that yeah we didn't see any difference there so it was mostly the sort of continuous endurance events which is obviously relevant to this podcast yeah. um and then from memory they the majority of those studies were in cycling and that's just what you generally see in the literature more broadly yeah. because it's easier to do, it's easier to recruit for. Um, you can standardise power outputs and things like that. It's a bit easier than, than you know, treadmill-type studies, for, particularly for performance tests and things like that where you're doing time trials rather than doing them on a treadmill. So, um, yeah, we, we did look at, you know, whether there was a difference, say, between running and cycling. Obviously, one of the key differences there being that, you know, running – The energy cost of running is related to the amount of weight that you've got to carry with you. And if you're hyperhydrated, you're carrying a little bit more weight because you're carrying that extra water. Whereas on a bike, uh, on a flat surface at least, the weight doesn't play a factor. It's just the pure power output versus drag, air resistance. Uh, And that's not affected by hyperhydration obviously a different story once you start riding up a hill though but there wasn't really (laughs) enough variety in the studies because most of them are just done in the lab on a stationary bike there's just not enough variety in those studies to be able to kind of tease out whether there is a different effect in flat cycling compared to running or uphill cycling is that a fair comment chris
2: yeah, I think that's that's spot on. And, I, and then there's very few studies done in females as well from memory. Mm. Uh, most of it's done, you know, with males and, and not in really elite athletes. And most of it is sort of recreational to, it might be some trained uh, individuals in those studies, but yeah, uh, not in a sort of elite sense. So there's probably some more research that really needs to be done. Whilst we've seen this sort of beneficial effect and it is relatively small, you know, it's not generalizable right across the spectrum of, of you know different types of sports and and, and different athletes and, and you know different sexes as well so there's a, there's a bit more research that's probably required but nonetheless it, it's good to know and uh, hopefully that will help sort of inform I guess you know what people think about and what they what, what strategies they they employ when they're uh, when they're you know putting things together for themselves now the other interesting thing we found in that study was that um, there was no difference in terms of the hyperhydration method that was employed so we didn't see a mediating factor from using glycerol versus sodium versus other agents used as well
0: Mm. yeah exactly and even intravenous versus oral I mean obviously the volume of fluid used is quite different but it didn't seem to make a difference at least from what we could see yeah 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 and so from a hyperhydration perspective I guess as I said earlier it's probably going to be more in those sort of elite sort of one-and-a-half to two-and-a-half-hour events because you've got that high sweat rate. You've probably got the issues with tolerance. Ultra-endurance events, usually, you know, your sweat rate's going to be lower. The effect of hyperhydration is probably going to wash out after a period of time anyway by the time you get to 6, 8, 10, 15 hours of exercise anyway. And so it's probably going to be a very specific group of athletes where this strategy is likely to be potentially useful anyway.
2: Yeah, Exactly. Mm. And put it this way, like unless there was really solid justification for using it in practice, it probably wouldn't be the highest priority on the list. Um, mm. You know, if, you can, if you're in a, an event or you're an athlete that can remain well hydrated prior to exercise and you have access to fluid during an event, there's probably lots of other things that you'd prioritise, other nutrition for fueling, you know, rest, all those things are probably going to be higher on the list than this. Than but in some circumstances... It might be up there, depending on you know, what the context is.
0: Mm. And I guess that comes to you know potential caveats or downsides to using this kind of approach. So if we think about like how much fluid you mentioned, obviously it's a large volume of fluid. It's sort of between sort of ten. You know, before we were talking about five to ten mils per kilo. Now we're talking about sort of ten to as much as twenty-five mils per kilo in some of the studies. That that's yeah. the kind of volume of fluid they've used, and that's sort of four hours before exercise that they're doing it. And then they're taking that, obviously, with the glycerol or the sodium. And I can't remember. I haven't got the figures off the top of my head exactly how much glycerol or sodium you add. I think glycerol is about 1.2 grams per kilo.
2: Yeah, it might be 1.2 to 1.4 grams per kilo. Yeah. And I think um, sodium was between 20 and 40 milligrams per kilo you'd, mm. you'd know more about the sodium l that's, yeah
0: that's
1: your...
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think i guess what you're trying to achieve with either the sodium or the glycerol is that when the fluid the water and the glycerol or the fluid and the sodium are absorbed into the body the osmolality in your blood stays this like it doesn't go down because of the water which it normally would it stays the same you don't want it going up because then you're going to get excessively thirsty that may not be that helpful uh, but you don't want it going down either because then that's going to signal to the kidneys to pee out that fluid that you've gone to all that effort of consuming and so from a sodium point of view it's probably more a matter of you know the closer you can get the sodium concentration in that fluid to the blood sodium concentration probably the the most likely you are to maintain that osmolality. But obviously, the more salt you add, the worse it's going to taste eventually. And we'll, we'll obviously chat to someone next week who's, who's tried this strategy and, and whether they found that okay or not. Um, glycerol is a little bit different, obviously, because you don't normally have heaps of glycerol floating around in the blood. It's a little bit artificial, but it is another way of controlling that osmolality. And so the dose is quite specific. But again, you know, if you get that wrong... If you underdo it, you're just going to pee out all that excess fluid. If you overdo it, you're going to get terribly thirsty. But the other potential downside is even before it's absorbed into the body is having all that glycerol or all that salt sitting in your gastrointestinal tract is drawing the water into the gastrointestinal tract instead of the other way that you're trying to achieve and end up with a whole lot of sort of not very nice gut symptoms as a result.
2: Yeah, that that's a real uh, uh, risk, I guess, and and so it goes back to what I was saying before. Like any hydration strategy, you've got to practice this stuff in training. This shouldn't be something that you implement, um, you know, the day before competition for the first time. It has to be practiced. It has to be something that you are confident will work and uh, doesn't cause side effects. Mm. Uh, so yeah, that practice is is critically important.
0: Yeah, yeah, and so I think. Wrapping all of that up, I mean, I guess where I'm sort of come to from a hyperhydration perspective is there's probably a a very small group of athletes that this might be potentially beneficial from. Uh, We've sort of talked about the events before. It's probably going to be the elite end of those athlete spectrum. Um, And so, again, that even narrows it down further. And then you've got these caveats around gut issues and things. And, and because of that, I think, you know, rather than going out and trying for yourself, this is a one of those nutrition strategies where I'd really highly recommend someone gets in touch with an experienced practitioner to guide them through the process rather than something that they just experiment with at home, because it's very likely to go horribly wrong if they don't get it right. And particularly with something like the glycerol, you're talking about really small quantities. So being able to measure that out accurately and get it right can be really
2: challenging as well. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I think um, yeah you know, get get in touch with a uh, accredited sports dietitian and, and work with them to yeah. to um, come up with a, a strategy and a plan that works. Yeah, awesome.
0: All right, well, we're just about done, so I'm going to hand back to Steph, and she's going to finish us off with the bonus round. So obviously, you would have done this back in episode 28, but we can always know more about you, Chris. So let's <laughs> let's find out. <laughs>
1: So what's a sport you've always wanted to try that you haven't yet had the opportunity?
2: Well, uh, I would have to say downhill mountain biking. You're a big mountain biker, aren't you, Al? Yeah, yep. Yeah.
0: Not so much downhill. I haven't uh, oh. gone for the the full face helmet and all the body armour and stuff. It's not so much my go, but yeah.
2: The reason I say it is, I uh, over my um, annual leave, my Christmas holidays, I went. Uh, I call it. I'll, I'll call it a climb. It's not really a climb, but I, I walked up to Mount Kosciuszko, up to the peak. And on that trip up, you see all the mountain bikers going mm-hmm. down. Yep. And I'm like, I want to do that. Yeah, that looks awesome. <laughs>
0: it looks like a much better way to go back down than on the chairlift.
2: It, exactly yeah but yeah. They, they're crazy it's, these little kids they're like the milo mites when you see them doing skiing yeah. and they're just zooming down and jumping over things i'm like oh that looks awesome and looks like great fun all the little trails they had uh, i want to do that but i'd probably fall off and hurt myself i'm a road cyclist so yeah doing uh downhill mountain biking that'd be the, that'd be a different step
1: <laughs> <laughs> and um any goals or new year's resolutions that you can share with us
2: Oh, less work, do less work. I, I think <laughs> enjoy life. <laughs> I you know I, I don't make I don't make New Year's resolutions or or, uh, or goals unless I have to um, for you know my, my work. But uh, yeah, look, I just I think you know we're 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 all overworked. We need to enjoy life a bit more. Yeah, I'll get out and do more hiking. I really enjoyed my uh, my leave, and uh, I walked through lots of national parks, and yeah, you know, it was so beautiful in in some of those national parks down. Uh, down there, so I need to do more of that. That's what I'm going to plan to do this year.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And um, sporting events that you're most looking forward to in 2023?
2: Uh, I'm an NRL tragic, so Mm -hmm. I am looking forward to uh, that competition starting up uh, in 2023, so really looking forward to uh, going to a few games as well. Now, I happen to work with um, Ben Desbro, and he works with the Titans and so I'm, I'll be calling on him for some tickets to the uh, to the games. Nice,
1: <laughs> Ben. If you're listening to this, get them ready. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and what was the best book that you read or podcast apart from ours that you listened to in 2022?
2: Yours is always top of the list, Steph and Al. So correct always answer, top of the list. Yes. <laughs> 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 get b- bonus points for that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I'd say I've actually got a book that I've started, but I haven't gotten all the way through it, but I'm enjoying it. It's, it sounds a bit bad, but it's a book by Thomas Erickson called Surrounded by Idiots. Um, <laughs> it's, it's basically about understanding human behavior and how to influence people around you, um, even those who you think are beyond all comprehension. So uh, I'm enjoying it so far. I haven't gotten all the way through it, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll continue, continue to read that.
0: All right, and then you'll probably start influencing us for more frequent flyer points on the podcast.
2: Where's the flyer points, exactly? Yeah,
0: yeah exactly right, and you're, you've already subtly snuck one in there with the, the podcast, so yeah. All right, well, thank you so much for your time, Chris. It's been a pleasure to have a chat to you again. I think this has been really useful for, for lots of people to try and work out where their hydration is at, and obviously you know being right in the middle of summer here in Australia that's very relevant to a lot of people. And for those of you in the Northern Hemisphere – Maybe something to keep in the back of your mind for a few months' time as it starts to warm up up there as well. So, thanks again for your time, and um, yeah, I'm sure we'll I'll be in touch with you probably pretty soon to finish off that paper.
2: Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Al. Thanks, Steph. Cheers. Awesome.
1: That was awesome as always. Chris has a, a knack to being able to explain things really easily. At least for, for me, it, seems to be absorbed really nicely. So I'll I'll let you do the summary, Al.
0: Yeah, cool. So just a reminder, our question was, you know, how do I ensure I'm well hydrated prior to exercise, whether that's a race or maybe a big training session in, in hot weather. So I guess the first thing is, well, what do we actually mean by optimally hydrated? And in scientific terms, we use the term "u-hydration" to mean sort of well hydrated. It's hard to define exactly what that means, um, but I guess from a practical point of view, when we don't have access to fancy lab equipment and blood tests and all of those kind of things, probably the best way to do that is using that WUT or what model, which is basically that you look at your body weight that's within 1% of what you know is sort of your well-hydrated weight from past experience. Obviously, your weight may change a little bit over time, but you know within the, the last few days, it gives you a rough idea if your weight is within 1% of what it normally is in that sort of well-rested, hydrated state. Urine color that it's fairly sort of clear or pale, sort of yellowy color. If you've got one of those color charts and you can get them off Google Images, so less than a four on those charts, and that you're not you know particularly thirsty. So if you can tick all of those three boxes, chances are you are well hydrated or you hydrated. Uh, if you don't tick off all three of those boxes um, say you have a urine color that's a bit darker but your weight's still within one percent and you're not particularly thirsty well you're probably still okay but if you don't tick two of those boxes or all three then that's probably a good indication that you know possibly you are a bit what we call hypohydrated, and that you could do with a bit more fluid to bring you back to that kind of you hydrated state so to do that I guess you you know, for most people drinking to thirst, if you've had more than about 12 hours since your last training session, unless it was like a massive session, or race or something, then chances are that will probably be adequate to, you know, bring you back to you hydration. Uh, I guess the other thing we need to be careful about is not going overboard in terms of just drinking, 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 because we're scared sort of about being dehydrated, and then we're up all night going to the toilet, or doing it you know, on the morning of a race and the same thing, you know, you're sitting on the start line needing to pee or wanting to pee and it's just not not a, a great experience. So, you know, you, you can go too far from that perspective as well. But if you are or you, you feel you are a bit underhydrated based on that WUT model, uh, the recommendations would be to have about 5 to 10 mils of fluid for every kilo of body weight. So if we, you know, took the 5, for example, just multiply that by your body weight in kilograms, and have that in, in the number of mills, about four hours prior to exercise. And the four hours is to give you time to drink that fluid, have it absorbed into the blood, let the kidneys do their thing, and if it is actually more than you need, to flush out the excess so you're not sitting there with, with excess fluid in your in your blood and in your body prior to the start. If you don't have that amount of time before your race or your training session, then you can scale that back a little bit. And there is actually a a recommended sort of scaled down version of that, which is about three to five mils per kilo of body weight, about two hours pre-exercise as well. And that will achieve kind of a a similar thing or or as close to as you can when you're constrained by the amount of time, particularly sort of morning type training sessions. Now, to help retain that fluid a bit better, if that fluid has some sodium in it, usually in the normal range of sports drinks, it's actually not going to make that much difference. It has to be sort of really salty or having food along, solid food along with that, um, that water will help to retain that fluid. So having other nutrients in there, whether it's carbohydrate, uh, protein, protein you know, fiber, all those kind of things will actually help a little bit with that fluid retention as well, which is why things like milk, for example, tend to retain better than than water or sports drinks. Now pre-exercise, hyperhydration is actually where you say, I don't just want to be, you know, you hydrated prior to exercise. I, I want to go above and beyond that. So that might be when, you know, maintaining, you know, good level of hydration to optimize performance during exercise is just impossible either you have a really high sweat rate or the cost of accessing and drinking fluids or tolerating those fluids is just too great in your particular event and as we said in the interview with Chris that's going to be a very narrow range of events where that might be relevant usually in very hot weather and usually sort of elite athletes but in those cases, to hyperhydrate, you're drinking much greater quantity of fluid. So instead of 5 to 10 mils per kilo four hours before, you're going 10 to 25 mils per kilo four hours before exercise. But if you just do that with, with normal fluids, you're going to pee out the majority of that and you're not going to be any better off. So you need to then add something like glycerol or enough sodium, so far more than you just your average sports drink, in order to retain that fluid and not just pee it straight back out again as we mentioned, Chris and I have been working on that meta-analysis, looking at whether this hyperhydration, if you can achieve that, does it actually help with performance? And for sort of continuous endurance events, it does seem to have a beneficial effect on performance, but it's not a massive effect. And it's probably significantly smaller than other factors that you are also focusing on, like getting enough carbohydrate, for example. So from that point of view, maybe this is One tool in the toolbox that you could use to optimize performance on race day, but it's probably not in the top one or two or even three or four strategies that you would use. It would be if you've ticked all those things and you've still got capacity to manipulate things, then you might go to this particular strategy. So if you want to leave absolutely no stone unturned. Mm. So as I said before, it's probably more for elite athletes. It requires a lot of careful planning to ensure that the sodium and the glycerol dose is correct and that it's not going to give you any unwanted side effects or just pee out all of that fluid that you've drank. And because of that, again, as we mentioned, professional support is highly recommended if you want to pursue this particular kind of approach.
1: Yeah. And when you say it's, you know, probably more for elite athletes, that's because the percentage difference that it can make is is really tiny. Is, is that right?
0: Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think um, that secondly, that the elite athletes are the ones that most likely are going to have those very high sweat rates because of the pace or the power output that they're using, mm-hmm. um, the type of event they're doing, mm-hmm. and the cost of slowing down to collect fluid is a lot greater mm-hmm. in elite athletes than it is in recreational athletes as well.
1: Mm. And yet, it's interesting that much of the research has been done more on the recreational or some trained. As we know, it's really bloody hard to get elite level athletes in for studies and to be able to measure those tiny percentage differences. But I guess that's kind of where we're, we're needing to have more of that research, what sounds like is in elite and probably to try and get um, more work in the running filled um which as we know is hard to um recruit as well
0: yes and hard to measure performance as Mm. as accurately as you can on a bike yeah
1: yeah awesome so following this one up our who is our um our guest
0: yeah so our next episode will be episode 52b so the follow-on from this episode and we're going to be joined by Tokyo Olympian in the marathon Ellie Pashley So we spoke to Ellie quite a while ago about iron supplementation and her journey with iron supplements, but now we're going to talk to her experience, particularly with the Tokyo Olympics being a very hot environment. We've talked to one of her teammates, Sinead Diver, uh, about 12 months ago or so about the cooling side of things, and she touched a little bit on the hyperhydration, Mm. but we're going to focus in on a bit more on her experience with the hyperhydration, but also just day-to-day hydration in training as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And so just um, wrapping up for, for today, just a reminder, if our listeners do have a question that they'd like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. And thank you to those people who have left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We really do appreciate it. And just a reminder that there's now more than 50 previous questions that we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. You may like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you. Most podcast apps only show the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them there going back to November 2020. If you want to be notified every time a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app you're listening to this on. And if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition issue for their training or racing and you've heard it on the podcast, then you might like to let them know. Otherwise, as always, we will love and leave you and see you not um, next week but the week after.
0: That's right, so fortnightly from now on. Awesome. See you then.